Amen, amen. Thank you guys so much. Oh, thanks, Brian. Yes. Thank you, my brother. Well, good morning, everyone. Good to see each and every one of you today. Uh, as usual, I'll just introduce myself. If there's anyone here that doesn't know me, I'm Slade Reinhardt. I'm the director of Grow and Connect Ministries here at Fellowship Bible Church, and it's my privilege to preach God's Word to you this morning. As you uh, hopefully, as hopefully all of you know at this point, uh, we are currently without a lead pastor, so that's why I have been in the pulpit more than usual, and I'll be filling the pulpit all throughout the month of January, and then beginning in February, our executive pastor, Adam McMahon, will begin sharing that with me, and uh, we'll have a few other men that will work into the preaching rotation as well. Knowing human tendencies, uh, I realized that if you guys are seeing me in the pulpit each week, it's natural to think that I am the interim lead pastor, and that is not the case, so don't get that idea. Uh, we actually don't have an interim lead pastor, uh, Adam McMahon, who's our executive pastor. He is overseeing all of us who are on staff, including myself, and uh, he and all of us are under the authority of the elders <clears throat> Excuse me, as we uh, move forward during this time and, and get our feet under us. So uh, just bear with us on that, but I don't want you to get any wrong ideas. Okay, well today, since I will be doing all of the month of January, uh, I decided, well actually, I've got to give Adam credit for this. He suggested that I do a five-week series to, to fill out the month. So what I'm going to do is a sermon series through the book of Second Peter. We're just going to go through the entire book. And uh, you guys can go ahead and turn in your Bibles to Second Peter chapter 1. We will be starting in verse 1. We'll begin at the beginning, as Julie Andrews taught us. <laughs> I so appreciate that somebody <laughs> caught that <laughs> illusion. Uh, before we get into the, the passage that we're going to be looking at today, let me just tell you a little bit about the book of 2 Peter. You might be surprised to hear that 2 Peter was actually uh, not readily accepted as Scripture by the church at large. For instance, Origen, who was a third century Christian scholar and theologian, said that 1 Peter was acknowledged as Scripture, but that 2 Peter was disputed. Now, that does not mean that 2 Peter was rejected as false and then later brought back in as accepted. What, what this category of disputed that the early church used was referring to books that were well-known and were used by some churches as scripture, but the church as a whole had not accepted them as canonical. The disputed books that were listed by Eusebius, who uh, wrote early in the 4th century, were James, Jude, 2 Peter, and 2nd and 3rd John. And those were all of the disputed books. As you know, over time, through the uh, inspiration and guidance of the Holy Spirit who inspired the Scriptures, all of those books did come to rightly be recognized as inspired and therefore as part of the biblical canon. One of the reasons that 2 Peter was in doubt is because... It has a different style and vocabulary than 1 Peter. So uh, some people in the early church were thinking, well, maybe this wasn't written by the Apostle Peter. Maybe it was somebody just trying to add authority to, the, authority to their own writings, which was common during that time. And so people were a little bit suspicious that, that maybe it was a, uh, one of those spurious works. However, biblical scholars D.A. Carson and Douglas Moo and how would you like to grow up with a last name like that? Moo. Isn't that great? I, it's neat to me. I'm sorry. 
anyway, back <laughs> D.A. Carson and Douglas Moo, they point out that the style differences between First and Second Peter have actually been exaggerated, especially by scholars who are have, a, have an axe to grind who are wanting to deny the authenticity of Peter. And then uh, they also point out that Peter may have been using a somewhat different style because he had a different audience in mind or he was trying to better connect to his audience. The bottom line is that Second Peter was inspired by God and is therefore rightly included in our Bibles. In fact, by the year AD 367, Athanasius, who was an early uh, church leader and influential uh, theologian, in his letter, his festal letter of AD 367, he included Second Peter in his list of the canon of the New Testament. In fact, that's the first list that we have that is completely the 27 books in our New Testament and no more than that. <clears throat> so for the church at large, the issue of the canonicity or the inspiration of Second Peter has been settled for 16 centuries and a little bit more, so you can feel very confident that we're going to hear God's word. I called this series Grace and Knowledge because Peter's final exhortation to his audience is to grow in the grace and knowledge of our Lord and Savior Jesus Christ. And throughout the book, you'll see these themes of grace and knowledge uh, woven into what Peter says. And my prayer this morning is that you and I and everyone who's watching online will experience growth in that grace and knowledge. So let's go ahead and look at the first section of this book, uh, 2 Peter chapter 1. I'm going to be reading the first 15 verses. Simeon Peter, a servant and apostle of Jesus Christ, to those who have obtained a faith of equal standing with ours by the righteousness of our God and Savior, Jesus Christ, may grace and peace be multiplied to you in the knowledge of God and of Jesus our Lord. His divine power has granted to us all things that pertain to life and godliness, through the knowledge of him who called us by his own glory and excellence, by which he has granted to us his precious and very great promises, so that through them you may become partakers of the divine nature, having escaped from the corruption that is in the world because of sinful desire. For this very reason, make every effort to supplement your faith with virtue, and virtue with knowledge and knowledge with self-control, and self-control with steadfastness, and steadfastness with godliness, and godliness with brotherly affection, and brotherly affection with love. For if these qualities are yours and are increasing, they keep you from being ineffective or unfruitful in the knowledge of our Lord Jesus Christ. For whoever lacks these qualities is so nearsighted that he is blind having forgotten that he was cleansed from his former sins. Therefore, brothers, be all the more diligent to make your calling and election sure. For if you practice these qualities, you will never fall. Therefore, oh, excuse me, uh, skip the verse tonight. For in this way, there will be richly provided for you an entrance into the eternal kingdom of our Lord and Savior, Jesus Christ. Therefore, I intend always to remind you of these qualities, Though you know them and are established in the truth that you have, I think it right, as long as I am in this body, to stir you up by way of reminder, since I know that the putting off of my body will be soon, as our Lord Jesus Christ made clear to me. And I will make every effort so that after my departure, you may be able, to, you may be able at any time to recall these things. Amen. 
Meiji was emperor of Japan from 1867 to 1912. And during his reign, he moved the nation of Japan from a feudal, somewhat medieval country to a modern power. He established a centralized government. He approved a constitution that created an, an elected parliament. He oversaw the modernization of transportation and communication. He introduced universal education with an emphasis on Western learning, and he strengthened Japan's military forces. He was loved because of all he did for the people of Japan. People wanted to follow him because of the generosity and goodness that he had displayed to them. This passage that I just read in 2 Peter expresses a similar idea. Peter is reminding us of what God has done for us in order to motivate us to follow him more fervently. The passage begins by reminding us that God gave us everything. God gave us everything. Now, these first two verses are, of course, the greeting in the letter. They tell us who wrote it and who it was written to. But he also makes a couple of important theological points. So look with me again at verses 1 and 2. Simeon Peter a servant and apostle of Jesus Christ, to those who have obtained a faith of equal standing with ours by the righteousness of our God and Savior, Jesus Christ. May grace and peace be multiplied to you in the knowledge of God and of Jesus our Lord. Now, the, the first thing that jumps out to me, and hopefully to you as well, is the odd way that he introduces himself. Because in 1 Peter, Peter said, Peter, an apostle of Jesus Christ. And then in 2 Peter, he starts off with Simeon Peter, a servant and apostle of Jesus Christ. Peter uses his given name, Simon, and he uses the Hebraic form of that name, Simeon. Now, I realize uh, some of you may have versions that do say Simon because there is uh, a little bit of uh, variation uh, in the manuscripts that we have, but the majority of the best manuscripts do use the, the term Simeon. Now, uh, scholars speculate that the reason he said Simeon Peter was just to emphasize his Jewish heritage and remind the church that we are one body, united Jews and Gentiles. <clears throat> Excuse me. And then he goes on to uh, tell us who he's writing this to. Now, Second Peter is called a general epistle because it is not addressed to a specific city or a specific person. But from what he says in chapter 3, we can tell that actually he does have in mind a specific group of people, some people that he does, does know, so perhaps a, a group of churches in a particular geographical area. But the greeting is, is beautifully general to all Christians. He writes, to those who have obtained a faith of equal standing with ours. The Theological Dictionary of the New Testament says that this word obtained usually means to obtain by lot, drawing out of a hat or somebody... Uh, uh, rolling dice or flipping a coin, that kind of thing. And that even when no lots are involved, the, uh, the obtaining is not by your own effort and it's not a result of your own exertions, but is like ripe fruit falling into your lap. Isn't that a beautiful picture? Peter's pointing out that this faith that his readers have obtained was not obtained by them. It was dropped to them by the living God. It was given to them by the Lord. And he says that it's an equal standing with ours. In other words, the faith that you guys have is equal to the faith that we apostles have. It's the very same faith, and it was given to us by God. He's reminding them that our faith is dependent on the grace of God and not on us. God gave you your faith. You didn't produce it by your own spiritual insight or your own efforts. 
So the first thing Peter reminds us is that God gave us our faith. The very faith by which we are saved, that was a gift of God. And then in verse 2, he offers a blessing to believers, multiplied grace and peace. And he touches on one of the themes that I mentioned in this letter, the knowledge of Christ. He prays for grace and peace to be multiplied in the knowledge of God and of Jesus our Lord. The source and channel of grace, the source and channel of peace is the knowledge of the triune God. Only through knowing him can we experience the fullness of grace and peace. In commenting on this verse, Matthew Henry said that the fountain of all spiritual blessings is the divine power of Jesus Christ, because it is only through Jesus that we come to know the Father. So ultimately, Jesus is the fountain of all these blessings. Now, moving on from the greeting, Peter continues to tell us what the Lord has given us. So look again at verse 3. His divine power has granted to us all things that pertain to life and godliness. Through the Holy Spirit's inspiration, Peter is about to tell us how we should live. He's about to give us commands. <clears throat> He's about to give us commands that we should listen to and that we should obey. But before he does that, before he says, this is how you should behave, before he says, this is how you should live, he wants us to know what God has done for us. The point, I think, is that God's work always precedes our work. Our work, any work that we do that is good, any work of ours that is acceptable before God must be based on the work of God on our behalf. So, okay, Peter, what, what particular work of God do you want us to think about before you give us instructions for living? And this is what he says, that Christ granted to us all things that pertain to life and godliness. He granted it to us. Again, going back to this is God giving you something. This is not you earning something. This is the grace of God being poured out onto your life. Christ granted us all things that pertain to life and godliness. Now think about the fact that God, that Christ gave us life. He's talking about eternal life, of course. He's talking about the life that we enjoy as being part of the kingdom of God. And that's why he adds, and godliness. Basically, he's saying that Christ gave you godly life. Christ gave you the life that you live as a believer. He's talking about the Lord exercising his infinite power to give us eternal life through the forgiveness of sins, through our union with Christ Jesus, and through the gift of the indwelling Holy Spirit. He's talking about his life within us and every means that helps us remind, it helps remind us of that life, such as communion that we just enjoyed, and every means that strengthens our faith and motivates us to glorify him. Jesus gave us everything that relates to life and godliness. And he follows up by explaining how. Look at verse 3 again. Through the knowledge, there's that theme again, through the knowledge of him who called us, by his own glory and excellence. Jesus granted us this grace, eternal life, and everything that relates to us through the knowledge of himself. In John 17, 3, Jesus said, This is eternal life, that they know you, the one true God, and Jesus Christ, whom you have sent. He granted us all these, three, these things through knowing him. And Peter continues to emphasize that this work is God's work, not our work. He's going to get to our work. But first, he wants a very strong foundation of this is what God has done. This is the beginning of everything. This is what your work is going to be based upon. Christ is called him who called us 
to his own glory and excellence. Now that phrase, him who called us to his own glory and excellence, who's the initiator there? Who's the actor? It is Jesus. It is not us, right? He doesn't say that uh, he granted us his uh, everything pertaining to life and godliness through the knowledge of him whom we diligently sought and found. He said that he has granted us everything that pertains to life and godliness through the knowledge of him who called us, the one who reached out to us, the one who brought us into his kingdom. Peter wants us to know beyond any shadow of a doubt that this is God's work and grace in our lives. Christ mercifully and graciously reveals himself to us out of his great love for us rebellious sinners. We do not arrive at the knowledge of Christ, the saving knowledge of Christ, by our own intelligence or hard work. And then he mentions something else that God gave to us. Look at verses 3 and 4. His divine power is granted to us all things that pertain to life and godliness through the knowledge of him who called us to his own glory and excellence, by which he has granted to us his precious and very great promises. The Lord also gave us his promises, which are precious and very great. Now, the ESV makes this a little harder to see than some translations, but that phrase, by which, is referring to Christ's glory and excellence that's mentioned in verse 3. The Lord granted us his promise by his own glory and excellence. We receive the promises of God by the glorious excellence of Jesus Christ, in whom all the promises of God are yes and amen. And what are these promises? Well, obviously there are far too many to list this morning, but I'll just touch on a few of them. We're promised forgiveness for our sins. We're promised an eternal inheritance. We're promised the physical return of Jesus Christ to this earth. We're promised ultimately total deliverance from our sin and perfect communion with the triune God forever. These glorious promises then enable us to live as children of God. Look at verse 4 again. By which he granted to us his precious and very great promises, so that through them, through the promises, you may become partakers of the divine nature, having escaped from the corruption that is in the world because of sinful desire. Through the promises of God, we are indwelt by the Holy Spirit, and we are united to Christ. We literally partake of the divine nature. We participate in the very life of God. A follower of Christ isn't just living a natural life. He or she is experiencing supernatural life shared with the eternal God. Whether or not you feel it, whether or not it looks like it, it is true of everyone who has trusted in Christ. I'm reminded of what Paul said in Galatians 2, Galatians 2 that it is no longer I who live, but Christ who lives in me. That is us partaking of the divine nature because the Lord God is sharing his life with us. Believing the promise of forgiveness of sin, believing the promise of eternal life, believing the promise of adoption into the family of God made you a partaker of the divine nature. Believing the promise of the gospel brought you into this place. And having been born again, having been transferred from the kingdom of darkness to the kingdom of light, you have escaped the world's sinful corruption. You have escaped the spiritual condition of the world that is set as an enemy of God, hating what is good and right and rebelling against his authority. You have escaped that. You've been rescued from it. God gave us everything pertaining to godly living. Then the Lord gives us the application of this truth. Since he's given us everything pertaining to godly living, we should diligently pursue Christ. We should diligently pursue Christ. 
Look with me again at verses 5 to 7. For this very reason, make every effort to supplement your faith with virtue, and virtue with knowledge, and knowledge with self-control, and self-control with steadfastness, and steadfastness with godliness, and godliness with brotherly affection, and brotherly affection with love. I do want to continually emphasize the truth that your status as a beloved child of God is completely dependent on the person and work of Jesus Christ, on who he is and what he's done. That's why Peter sequenced this passage the way that he did. Your identity as a Christian, your place in the family of God, your righteousness, these were all given to you by God independently of your spirituality. In fact, I'll go farther than that, in spite of your spirituality, because by nature, we were dead in our trespasses and sins, and we were enemies of God. <clears throat> but God revealed his son to you. The Spirit of God convinced you that you are sinful and deserving God's wrath, and he convinced you that Jesus Christ stood ready to deliver you, that he died to pay for your sins and rose from the dead as Lord of all. God gave you a new birth. He forgave your sins. He gave you the righteousness of Christ, and he gave you the Holy Spirit to dwell within you. He gave you his power to live a life that brings glory to himself. And that, that gracious work of God is what drives us to obey what Peter says after verse 4. For this very reason, because of what God has done for you, because God has given you everything, make every effort to supplement your faith. You trust in Christ. That's the beginning of the Christian life. Now, Peter says, grow in your walk with God by adding these righteous qualities to your life. And you remember... I'll emphasize it again. You do not add to your faith in order to maintain your place in God's family. You add to your faith because of what God has done for you. I'm reminded of what Paul said in Romans chapter 12 when he said, Present your bodies as living sacrifices. Right before that, he said, I appeal to you by the mercies of God. Because of what God has done for you, now pursue this life that the Lord is laying before you. Peter lists seven qualities that we should pursue, seven qualities that we should add to our trust in Christ. And of course, these seven qualities are all character traits of the Lord Jesus himself. Ultimately, what Peter is saying is grow to be more like Jesus, work to be more like Jesus. And since becoming more like Jesus draws us closer to him, he's really telling us to be diligent to pursue Christ himself. I'll run through these seven qualities just briefly to make sure we understand the, the terms that the Lord's commanding us to cultivate. Virtue is moral excellence, doing what is right, energetically and sincerely doing what is right. Knowledge refers to spiritual knowledge, understanding God's truth and therefore understanding who God is and what he's done. Self-control is exercising control over your desires and your actions, restraining yourself from being driven by emotion or whim. <clears throat> steadfastness is endurance under difficult circumstances, clinging to your trust in Christ even when things are very difficult and painful. Godliness refers to showing proper reverence for God or proper, uh, proper devotion to God. Brotherly affection refers to love for fellow believers. And love, of course, the crowning uh, quality, you might say, is the giving of yourself for the good of others. Now, Peter is certainly not trying to list every single possible quality or character trait that we need to be pursuing. What he's doing is giving us a, a big picture of this is what a godly life looks like. This is what it looks like to pursue Christ. 
But it does raise a question. How do we add these things? How do we supplement our faith with these things? Well, the most basic answer to that question is that you engage with the means that God has provided for us to grow in our faith, for us to move toward maturity in Christ. For instance, you gather with the body of Christ, you sing to the Lord, you listen to his word preached, you pray with your fellow believers, you encourage them in the faith, you read and study God's word, you pray, pouring out your heart to him, sharing with him uh, all of your needs, as well as giving him praise and glory and thanks. But let's think about a specific quality. I'll just take brotherly affection. There are, uh, well, no, I won't say that. Let's suppose that you struggle with brotherly affection. Let's suppose you struggle with, with really loving your fellow brothers and sisters in Christ. Maybe the people around you that are, that are here at the church just irritate you or annoy you. Maybe you're like, I, I, just, I just really can't hang with these people. They, uh, they uh, <laughs> I said cramp your style. Uh, didn't mean to go all 60s on you. They... Uh, they just don't seem to gel with me, okay? I don't, I don't really seem to fit with these people, so I, I would rather spend my time with my unbelieving friends who have all these common interests with me than, than these believers. Well, on top of the things that I already mentioned, uh, you could ask the Lord, first of all, to give you love for your fellow believers. Lord, in spite of this man that, that just gets on my last nerve with the way he talks or the way he jokes, he is a fellow believer, born of the Spirit of God, washed in the blood of Christ. He is my brother, and I will spend eternity with him. Help me to love him. Help me to have brotherly affection toward him. <clears throat> you could choose a few of the people in the church and start praying each week for them. And I would suggest that the people that most annoy you would be perfect uh, candidates for that. Uh, once you start praying for someone, asking God to bless their lives with his presence and power, asking God to grow them and asking God to protect them and use them, it will start stirring up your own affection for that person. And then on Sunday mornings, you could look for opportunities to meet a need for someone or to encourage them in the Lord. And as you do these things, you will find that God is building and cultivating brotherly affection in your heart. Now, Peter has already given us a reason to pursue Christ in response to the fact that God has given us everything. But he doesn't stop there. He goes on to give us several more reasons, both positive and negative, to pursue growth in our faith. So look with me at verses 8 through 11. For if these qualities are yours and are increasing, <clears throat> they keep you from being ineffective or unfruitful in the knowledge of our Lord Jesus Christ. For whoever lacks these qualities is so nearsighted that he is blind, having forgotten that he was cleansed from his former sins. <clears throat> Therefore, brothers, be all the more diligent to make your calling and election sure. For if you practice these qualities, you will never fall. For in this way, there will be richly provided for you an entrance into the eternal kingdom of our Lord and Savior, Jesus Christ. So the first additional reason he gives, in addition to the fact that God has given us everything, he says, look, if you are pursuing Christ, if you are cultivating these qualities in your heart, it will keep you from being ineffective or unfruitful in knowing Christ. A child of God, uh, excuse me, since you're working as a child of God to be more like him, you will naturally come to know him better. And so you will be begin producing more fruit in your life, the fruit of the Spirit, <clears throat> as you produce the qualities of Christ. Another reason to strive to grow in Christ is that a stagnant spiritual life leads 
to spiritual blindness. Now, this was a, to me, a very, very sober warning that he gave here. Because what he says is that a child of God who is not making every effort to cultivate these qualities can lose their discernment of what is good and right. In fact, they can even forget that, that they were cleansed from their former sins. In other words, a believer who is not cultivating a Christ-likeness, a believer who is not pursuing Christ, loses his confidence in his very profession of faith. The Spirit of God is telling us that we can lose the assurance of our salvation by not adding these qualities to our faith. We can end up living in the fear and doubt that we are still under the wrath of God. You may genuinely be saved, but you have lost the experience of assurance because you are not pursuing Christ. That's what the deceitfulness of sin will do to you unless you're fighting against it. Verse 10 is the other side of the equation. It says that practicing these, equali- these qualities makes, uh, excuse me, practicing these qualities makes our calling and election sure. In other words, if you're making every effort to be more like Jesus, you are strengthening your confidence that you are indeed a child of God, that you are indeed called and elected by God, called and elected to salvation. And then the last reason that Peter adds to to, uh, pursue Christ is that an entrance into his kingdom will be richly provided for us. Now, he's not saying again that, well, if you try hard enough to be like Jesus, then he will let you into his kingdom. What he's saying is that as a believer, at the end of your life, what's waiting for you is the reward of being brought into the kingdom of Jesus Christ, enjoying unhindered communion with him forever. And what he's trying to do is say, look at this reward that is waiting for you. Because of that, because of the beauty and glory of that reward, run hard after Christ, follow hard after Christ, make every effort to become more like him. Knowing that this is waiting for us should motivate us to pursue the Lord with all diligence. God gave us everything. So because of that, we should diligently pursue Christ. And finally, Peter adds this. We need to be reminded to pursue Christ. Now, Peter was certain that these believers knew the truths of Christ. He even says so. But he was also certain that they needed to be reminded of these qualities that they should be pursuing in their lives. He knew that they needed to be, needed to be reminded of Christ's likeness. They needed to be told again, this is what Jesus is like, and therefore this is what you should be like. This is a picture of the character of our Savior, so this is what you should be working toward. This is what you should be moving toward. Look at verses 12 through 15 again. Peter says, therefore, I intend always to remind you of these qualities, though you know them and are established in the truth that you have. I think it right, so long as I am in this body, to stir you up by way of reminder, since I know that the putting off of my body will be soon, as our Lord Jesus Christ made clear to me. And I will make every effort so that after my departure, after I'm dead, you may be able at any time to recall these things. Now, Peter knew that he wouldn't live much longer. And so he was, that's why he said, I know that the putting off of my body will be soon. So with the, the gravity of impending death, he's basically writing a farewell message to the church and saying, guys, I want you to be reminded of these truths that you know. 
I want you to be reminded of what God has done for you. I want you to be reminded that God has saved you and given you everything for living in godliness. And I want you to be reminded that we should respond to God's grace by giving all diligence to pursue Christ. He said in verse 12 that he was reminding them of these qualities. And he adds that they know them and they're established in the truth. They're sincere followers of Christ. They've been taught in his ways but they needed a reminder. And if they needed a reminder, then that means we needed, need a reminder as well. And why is that? Why do we need to be reminded of Christ's likeness? Why do we, we need to be reminded to pursue Jesus? Well, it's because the sinful world around us and our sinful hearts within us and the devil are all working to make us forget the qualities of Christ's likeness, to make us forget about pursuing Christ. These ungodly forces are constantly telling us that pursuing the Lord Jesus is unnecessary or even a waste of time. For instance, our minds might tell us with regards to virtue, virtue is worthless. I'm saved, I'm forgiven, it doesn't matter if I pursue immorality. The Spirit of God is saying it does matter and you need to be reminded that it matters. The natural gravity of fallen humanity is away from God. And even though you and I have been born again, we still carry with us that sin nature. So our hearts are hardwired to want to forget about these beautiful qualities and focus instead on selfishness or anger or bitterness or pleasure. You and I need to be reminded to pursue Christ. Our sin nature will tempt us to be lackadaisical or spiritually apathetic. Our minds will even use the glorious truth of salvation by grace to convince us that our spiritual growth is unimportant or even a waste of time. And that is a lie from the pit of hell. The Lord who loves you so much that he died for you, the Lord who loves you so much that he gave you everything that you need, he wants you to follow hard after him. Not because he needs you, but because he is the greatest good in the universe. And you were made to live for his glory. We need to be reminded to pursue Christ. The point is this. God saved you and is working to make you like Jesus. So work to be like Jesus. Now I do realize that a punchier and more memorable way to state the point of this message would have been just to say be like Jesus. But... The problem with that phrase is just sitting out there by itself, it misses this undergirding truth of what be like Jesus is based on. <clears throat> we should be like Jesus because the Father has saved us and given us everything that leads to being like Jesus. The gospel is not be like Jesus. No one has ever been saved by believing that they should be like Jesus. Unbelievers the world around say, yeah, Jesus was a great moral character. I should be more like him. But that is not what saves us. The gospel is Jesus died for your sins. Jesus was buried and Jesus rose the third day and then appeared alive to his followers. The gospel, the good news, the broadcast of God is who Jesus is and what he has done. Our response to the gospel is to repent of our sins to, to uh, believe in the Lord and to follow him. <clears throat> and that's where the be like Jesus comes in. It's our response to the goodness, grace, and mercy of God in saving us through the person and work of his son. <clears throat> God saved you and is working to make you like Jesus. So work, give effort, be diligent to be like Jesus. 
And when you fail, and you will fail every day, you can still rest in your faith in Christ. You aren't working to be more like Jesus so you can stay on God's good side. You're not fighting to keep your place in God's family. If you have trusted in Christ, you are forever an accepted and beloved child of God. Out of that secure place, secure in his love, then make every effort to be like Jesus. Try your best to become more like Jesus. God saved you and is working to make you like Jesus, so work to be like Jesus. Now, one way you can apply this message is very simply to thank the Lord for empowering you to live for his glory. Thank him that he has given us the indwelling spirit. Thank him that he has cleansed us. Thank him for his word. Thank him for the body of Christ. And another response, and really, of course, the most obvious, would be to indeed work to grow in one of these Christ-like qualities with the Lord's help. Choose perhaps the quality that you struggle with the most. Maybe it's brotherly affection, like I mentioned before. Maybe it's virtue, whatever it may be. Focus on one of those qualities and ask the Lord to help you to grow in that. And then do things that will encourage growth in that quality. And you might also look for an opportunity to tell someone what God has done for you. Tell someone that you have been forgiven by the mercy and grace of God. Tell someone that you've been adopted into the family of God. Tell someone that you have been given an eternal inheritance. Amen and amen. As I close in prayer in just a moment, uh, uh, I'll invite the prayer team to walk up to the stage here as as I'm praying. And uh, I'll just remind you, the congregation, that there will be, will be people up here across the stage enthusiastically ready to pray with you about anything, to talk with you about anything. So if you have a need, if there's something you're struggling with, if you don't know the Lord Jesus and want to, any of the people that will be up here would just be overjoyed to pray with you. Let's go to the Lord. Heavenly Father, in the name of your Son, Jesus who has never failed and will never fail, who is always faithful, strong, powerful, and loving. In his name, we commit ourselves to you. Lord, I pray for your grace and mercy on this congregation. I pray that you would grow us in our knowledge of you. I pray that you would grow us in Christ-likeness. Help us, O God, to give diligent diligence to pursuing you, to, to working to fight against sin, to working to cultivate godliness. And Lord, in the midst of that, may we never lose sight of the fact that our standing before you is not based on how well we're doing at fighting sin or how well we're doing at cultivating godliness, but our standing before you is based on the perfect and glorious work of Jesus Christ. Thank you for that gift, Lord. Thank you for your love. Thank you for your mercy. Thank you for your presence with your people. I ask for a special measure of grace for everyone who's gathered here this morning, either in person or online. And in your holy name, I commit them into your hands. Amen.